game on on 2FM with Green Farm being up to 90 isn't real the protein in our range is get real Thank you very much to Jenny and the team for the last couple of hours. It is Tuesday, the 4th of January, 2022. You're very welcome to Game On. Coming up tonight, Stephen Kelly on Romelu Lukaku's apology, fixture pileups, and the actual on-field action of late in the English Premier League. And Nigel blows his whistle, and Wolves have won at Old Trafford for the first time since 1980. And all the players went to celebrate with their goalkeeper, who has pulled off a world-class save with the final moment of the game to deny Manchester United an equaliser. What a start to 2022! In tennis, Novak Djokovic gets the all-clear to compete for an outright Grand Slam record in Melbourne. All players and staff at the tournament must be vaccinated or have an exemption granted by an expert independent panel. But on Tuesday, he posted this message on Instagram. I've spent fantastic quality time with my loved ones over the break and today I'm heading down under with an exemption permission. And as well as that, we'll hear Ruby's thoughts on the winners from the festive racing period. We'll also have the rest of the day's news. If you want to get in touch, you can t- text us. Our number is 51552, or you can tweet at GameOn2FM. GameOn on 2FM. So uh, we've all of that to come between now and 7 o'clock. We're going to uh, be joined by Ruby in just a second, but it's been a busy day in sport. It's been one of those ones over the last couple of weeks that um, you kind of were nearly afraid to stick on the radio because this event to be cancelled, that event to be cancelled, and we are kind of back to where we felt. Ruby, we've, I was just saying, you know, I was nearly afraid to stick on the radio over the last couple of weeks because this was being cancelled, that was being cancelled, there was questions about whether this would happen, that would happen, everything else. It's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. It seems to be that way, Damien. Um, I don't know, sure, look, I, I guess in racing, as only the crowds at Leperstown was, was, was the biggest impact, but um, I think looking at it from the outside in, rugby seemed to be the biggest loser, wasn't it? Um, so many games cancelled there. I mean, look, there was the odd Premier League game you know, of the Stevens' Day's fixtures, there should have been 10, there was 7. Um, rugby seemed to be the biggest loser from what I could see from the outside mm. looking in. And the problem with it all now is, you, you know, we, we talk about, and very often, I don't know how you feel about this uh, as a jockey or, you know, when you were competing, there's an awful lot of lip service is paid to the notion of player welfare or athlete welfare, but you're now going to have a situation where these breaks were built into calendars in order to give players a bit of downtime who are now going to get flogged if they're not at the Six Nations to make up these games. And even, you know, the EPCR coming out today, no plans to alter the Champions Cup campaign, that it's just a logistical nightmare for so many people to try and get so many things across the line. Yeah, it is, but I suppose I'm slightly old-fashioned, Damien, um, in that... uh, the National Hunt jockey had 10 days off in the year. Mm. Um, you just you got on it. And, and you competed the rest of the year and you just got on with it. And what's going to happen? I mean, Lens, the squads have huge squads. They're going to have to use different players and it's going to create opportunities for other people. Um, I, I'm slightly old-fashioned. I know player welfare is huge, a, a big topical thing, but to be honest with you, aren't they lucky to have contracts? But the games it, to be able to play in. That's yeah. the way I saw it. That's, that was just my mentality. And... I played and rode every day not to give somebody else a chance. Yeah, and player welfare is important, but sports science has developed so much as well that, you know, you, you very. I, I was actually, I was listening to an interview with Paul O'Connell earlier today talking about we might only do a couple of minutes of practising of this or that or focusing on whatever over an international test week that perhaps very often we 
over fixate outside elite sport on how much work goes on inside elite sport that you know it's the recovery time is as important that perhaps there's not half the amount of training done that we and the outside think has been done that you know they'll all be fine it can all be tapered it can all be worked out the other side of that coin is is I'm a believer in it is everybody overtrained Um, and I look I would have this row I've had had this conversation and debate several times with Donegal Callaghan horses are athletes and the easiest thing to do is to overtrain them Mm. so um, look to me it'll be recover play recover play I don't think they need much training Okay, so it's the first day back after the Christmas holidays you uh, you were busy is it like you obviously you follow sport but you know with racing it never really switches off. Like it's just as frantic a time of year as ever. So how is it for you now, being outside the tent compared to what it would have been like a couple of years ago inside yeah. the tent? Look, I suppose all my, my jobs are still revolve around when racing is on um, and the media is no different. And sport is the entertainment for everybody who's on holidays at Christmas. And that is the business you're in. And you have to provide the entertainment and try and maximise the airtime, airspace, whatever it is you can get to promote your own sport. So, look, Christmas to me as a jockey was always a vino because there was big crowd. Oh, they weren't there this year, but there was big crowds at Leperstown, huge attendances. And you got, you know, you got the chance to, to show, show yourself off. Now in the media... To be honest with you, Damien, they're longer days. When you when they was hanging around more, you might be there for three or four rides. Now you seem to be there before the first, and not leave till after mm-hmm. the last. But um, look, that's just just the joys of it. But I think there was some great racing. Yeah, we'll go through um, some of it. I know it's best to kind of categorise it and go through um, almost division by division in a way. But it seemed to be a case that, and again, we expect it year in year out. But the quality of racing in particular didn't let anyone down over Christmas. No, it didn't. And, you know, Christmas, I, I think Leperstown built from the first day on Stevens's Day all the way to the 29th to the last day, whereas in England, it, it starts with a bang and tends to taper down a bit. Um, you know, thankfully in Ireland, it's the opposite way around. But look, Stevens's Day did start with a bang and you had Tornado Flyer winning the King George for Danny Mullins and Willie Mullins. And, you know, it was an incredible race to watch. You had Bryony Frost and Frodo and Rachel Blackmore and Manila Indo going hammer and tongs at it up front. Look, ultimately they, they paid a price for the speed they went and so did other people then in the race who got involved and Danny Mullen showed incredible patience to wait and take his time and deliver Tornado Flyer who's a 25 to 1 shot um, with the best time challenge and mm. yeah look I must say I enjoyed watching it I enjoy watching jockeys get things tactically correct and I thought Danny got it spectacularly right Is that a race like the connection that you have personally to that race is it one that it's different for you to watch from other races or is that being overly nostalgic on my behalf? I think overly nostalgic I think I probably had an emotional connection because I probably admire Danny Mullins he's worked in Willie Mullins's most of his life um, I know him since he had a licence um, and I, I love his attitude um, I think he's one of those people in life who gets knocked down plenty never gives out and just keeps trying and keeps going again you never hear him moaning or, or complaining he loses rides he gets rides and he just takes the opportunities to come along and I must say he's a, he's, his outlook and his his willingness to, to work is is something a lot of people could learn from. I think he's a remarkable man. In all, like not just in racing, but in all forms. In, in of life, life, in yeah. all sorts of life. I mean, he would be second jockey in William Mullins was one month. He might drop down the pecking order, but he doesn't throw his ties out of the pram. He doesn't not turn up. 
he just starts again at the bottom and works hard till he gets his next opportunity. Mm. And he keeps doing that. And he's like he did super Christmas. He won the the King George on Tornado Flyer. He won the Rel Keel Hurdle on New Year's Day in Cheltenham on Stormy Island. You know, Paul Townend chose to stay at Leperstown and went to Tremort right album photo and Danny picked up the pieces. I'm not saying he's happy with his lot. He would love more, but he doesn't give out and just keeps there's a there's a lesson there, a shut mouth catches no flies yeah. and, and Danny uh, well, is brilliant at it. It's interesting, you, you know, two minutes ago you said you wrote out, you worked every day to stop somebody else from having the opportunity. And mm. I, I often, you know, you interview players, you interview sports people, and you, you might hear a scrum half talk about the importance of the other scrum halves, that we all work together and it's collegiate and we all push each other along the way. I don't really buy into half of that for a second. Well, because I'm a part of a team, exactly. so I never had to. But, but what, is it, what is it like within a yard? Like if you're the number one jockey and you spent the vast amount of your career as the number one man, but if you drop down the pecking order, is is there a frostiness around yards, or is there of that? Of course. That, but is is there any sense of that collegiality of I was the top dog last month, Ruby's the top dog this month. We'll all work together for the ultimate benefit of the yard. That's not how it operates in the real world, is it? Not particularly. Uh, maybe it did at the very end of my career. I knew I was on the way out. So, um, but no, you are all self-employed, and obviously, I would agree with what the scrum half will say. A good second string scrum half keeps the number one at his best but that's providing the manager's going to drop him mm. and I think you know, and it can happen in a lot of sports where people don't get dropped often enough and get complacent in the position they're in that can happen with jockeys too but if you've got a really good number two snapping at your heels it keeps you on the ball it keeps you on the game but that was the way I was maybe I was selfish or driven or whatever it was but that's what I felt I had to do to succeed and when I see other people doing it yeah I admire it yeah. I think you have to be that ruthless okay. to succeed if we have a quick fly through some of the other action then from Christmas we, we talked about the King George and maybe the stop staying chasers so if, if the King George tornado flyer was the star obviously the Savile's chase Galvin was the one to look out for yeah he was and he too got a great ride from Davy Russell I mean who'd spent he'd be on about injury and player welfare I mean broke his neck in October of 2020 he was 11 months on the sidelines came back in September 2021 and here he, there he was winning the Savills at 42 years of age giving Galvin a brilliant ride and the strength and power he showed tactical noose as well but Galvin definitely and for me uh, Damien stepped forward I didn't see him when he was beaten by Frodon and Down Royal in the JN Wine chase or Labrock chase that is now as a Gold Cup horse but he stepped forward he stays strongly he won the National Hunt chase last year at Cheltenham which was three miles and six furlongs the Gold Cup is three and a quarter and he has the one thing that a lot of goal, a lot of horses don't have and that's stamina so yeah he, he put himself in the mix up He'll be a surprise winner to me, mm. but he won't be to a lot of people. But how do you ensure then, how do you build upon that to make sure you stay in contention as a Gold Cup and you don't fall back down the pecking order as might have been the case a couple of months back? I don't think he will. He's still improving. Um, I'd imagine he'll go from Christmas to Cheltenham. I'd be surprised if he has a run in the interim. And it'll be if he can jump as well as he did at Leperstown. Leperstown was the best we probably saw Galvin jumping. Mm. And he'll need to jump that well in Cheltenham in a Gold Cup. The two milers, Siskin and Envoy Alain, obviously the two big names to stand out. They were. Obviously, Shaq and Pursois didn't turn up. Ender Grameen is going to Ascot in the middle of January. Um, there was the, the delayed re reappearance of Shishkin. I thought he was brilliant in the wayward lad at Kempton on the 27th. Um, I liked the way he travelled. The race wasn't run at a frantic early pace, but um, his finishing sections and the way he finished off his race was outstanding. And then you had Envoy Allen, who is, you know, who was the great white hope. 
and I don't think he's improved enough. I think he plateaued at the beginning of his novice chase career and has probably declined a bit since. I think his victory in Leperstown in the Paddy Power dial about I think it is um, was the race title I think that posed as many questions as it gave anybody answers but look Andrew Camin and Shishkin if the two of those can line up on the second day of the Cheltenham Festival that would be one hell of a race um, Sharjah for Willie Mullins appears to be one of the real stars of Christmas for an awful lot of people yeah he was I mean he won his fourth Matheson hurdle um, he got a you know Patrick Mullins gave him a great ride I thought Zana here was probably the one horse to take from the race Damien he's only a four year old I think he imp- has improved a good bit from the Morgiana in Punchestown and you know he looked to have improved again by Christmas and being such a young horse he's the most likely of the two to improve again um, by February maybe for the Irish Champion Hurdle at the Dublin Racing Festival or even by March so we're great for Sharjah to go and win a fourth Matheson Hurdle uh, Patrick Mullins has ridden the four times and ironically this was the first year he lined up as Willie Mullins' first string in the race. Mm. Um, he'd been the second string every other year. Um, but look, he's been well placed and has achieved a lot uh, for a horse who's probably just shy of top notch, really. And Epitant, really the, the horse that caught it or the eye in the similar category across the water. Yeah, she did. But like, I mean, did Honeysuckle have a sleepless night looking at Epitant or Sharjah I doubt it very much and I don't even know there's no way she was watching them so it's probably a stupid analogy but um, <laughs> I don't think um, there'll be people she, texting in going Ruby the horse has feelings the horse yeah, knows exactly yeah, what's yeah, going yeah, on yeah, the I horse heard I, the radio the following I, morning yeah, and I doubt was she was tuning the ITV or racing TV yeah. but um, no I'd say Honeysuckle just hardened in the betting uh, for, the, for, the, for the champion hurdle in March and hopefully we'll see her at the Dublin Racing Festival she was spectacular there last year and hopefully we'll see her there again this year what else then in particular really stood out for you over the couple of days of I action? I think there were some great novice chasers. Look, obviously, you have to have novices. It's like underage players in football. You need novices to be to have open horses. And I thought we saw some cracking novices. I thought Fernie Hollow, Hawthorne, Kalur and Edward Stone were all very good in the two-mile division. Obviously, then you had... Um, Brave Man's Game at Kempton for Paul Nichols he was very good Fury Road at Leperstown for Gordon Elliott and Jigginstown and Galloping the Sean for Willie Mullins so there looks to be plenty of really decent novice chasers coming along and we didn't get to see Bob Ollinger at Christmas he's going to run in the Kalini and Punchestown in a fortnight's time so you know, I think there looks to be a good strength in the, in the novice chase bracket and then in the novice hurdle department I thought Sir Gerhard was really impressive in the maiden hurdle at Leperstown Mighty Potter won the grade one for Jack Kennedy and Gordon Elliott he looked really good as well you had Ginto in the Lawler's Hotel at Nace on Sunday I thought he looked like a really strong staying horse and stage star of Paul Nichols has won the Chalo Hurdle at Newbury so mm. all in all across all the brackets there was plenty of good performances I um, I won't say I was watching but I was listening to you know a lot of like BBC Five Live and stuff over Christmas in the car and there was definitely a lot of discussion early on that like Leopardstown the quality of racing was completely blowing everything in the UK out of the water I think Irish horses are already the favourites for 12 of the 14 significant races at Cheltenham that already the battle lines certainly in the media are being drawn in terms of a renewed Irish dominance in a couple yeah, of weeks time but that's always the way yeah but what happened at Cheltenham last year didn't happen overnight it yeah. had been coming for the last number of seasons and you know that was the climax of it and thankfully I suppose like like all things they don't blow in and blow out in a year mm. it that's like, no, the wheel will turn, but it could take but it's, yeah, two, if not three turn years to year. turn back. No, it won't turn overnight. Um, England didn't dominate the novice. You need to start of all, you have to dominate the novice hurdles to have, not, to have novice chasers, they then have open horses. And until England can gain dominance in the novice hurdle department again, they're not going to dominate at the top. And how far off is that? 
It depends. The, I mean, you look at the price of horses through the sales, Damien, in November or October, November, December. It's very strong. There's huge competitive competitiveness in the market for for horses, both to be bought to stay here and to go to the UK. But we have a really good product here, and England are still slightly at war with themselves as mm. regards prize money, fixtures. I think there's a lot of a lot of things to be sorted at the base level in the UK before they can dominate and, the top again. But isn't that the problem that there's too many vested interests and you're in that situation where you need to get turkeys effectively to vote for Christmas in order to bring some change about which will give them a more unified industry. And with that the gremlins have Obviously, there's somebody involved in uh, English horse racing has listened in and has cut the wire between uh, here and Ruby's office in the house. So we will come back to Ruby in a couple of minutes' time in full flow. So we're obviously, we're, we're see, we're being listened to in the corridors of power. Um, one or two other little bits of news uh, from earlier today. Uh, Graeme Roundtree signing a two-year contract extension uh, to remain on. Um, initially, certainly, the press release and everything else has talked about him staying on as uh, forwards coach. But to his credit, an honest answer to an honest question and didn't shy away earlier from his ambitions of perhaps in time filling the soon-to-be-vacant head coach's seat. That's the old adage. You can only control what you can and do what's best for me and my family and my career. But no, I can't control all of that. Obviously, there's a bit going on there, um, being well documented, but I'm just delighted that I've been able to commit and uh, put another two years in. I'm delighted to be re-signing in my current capacity. Um, the head coach question, well, that's one for another day. Uh, but what I can tell you is the club and all the parties concerned are, are very aware of my coaching aspirations. That's Graeme Rountree chatting earlier, Ruby. He's not shying away from the potential to maybe be head coach in time? I know, yeah, but what way that, does that work then, Damien? So he's still the forwards coach. Will that in, impact on a head coach coming well, in knowing that they have to work with Graeme? Well, see, no, look, I, I, I would think presume... he's fabulous at his job and it wouldn't bother me, but yeah, wouldn't it bother somebody else? Well, you see, here, herein lies the issue. We don't know what conversations are being had behind the scenes. We don't know, perhaps, is someone already lined up to come in in the summer. But you would imagine if Munster have given him a contract up until 2024, they're not going to give a guy a contract if it's going to completely go in the face of someone who's potentially coming in the door in the summer. Yeah, I know it's a tricky one. I mean, obviously you saw that in the with the FAI and with Stephen Kenny and contracts yeah. with Robbie Keane that it handed out it, it didn't work. I mean, I just found it it, it interesting. Um, and I wonder who they have that's going to come in above Graham Roundtree. Yeah, look, I think he's done a wonderful job since he took over from Jerry Flannery in 2019. He seems to be very popular. He wanted a five-year contract, so he obviously loves the place. But then the flip side of it as well is if Stephen Larkham is going, who's senior coach, if Johan van Graan is going, who's the head coach. You would imagine everywhere Johan van Graan has been, JP Ferreira, who's the defence coach, has been, that there's going to be a clear out that it would make sense to have some form of continuity there as well, because otherwise it's a fairly seismic change in a close season. Yeah, it is a seismic change, but look, what is a change? A break is as good as a change, a change yeah. is as good as a break, whatever I'm, it is. I it's needed as well. Um, two other quick lines uh, Christian Eriksen setting out quite strongly today his ambitions to play in the World Cup in Qatar at the end of this year would wish him well there's an awful lot of talk about prominent Premier League teams uh, being interested in signing him in the January transfer window yeah I know and I was reading up on it there since I read that actually and he has an implantable cardio defibrillator 
which an means I, he, an IED, I think. An, I, an ICD. Oh, an ICD. Sorry, my apologies. So, which means he cannot play in Italy. Yeah. Now, I read somewhere else on Twitter. What is it? Uh, World according to social media. Um, as I was looking for information on this. Can he play in the UK with it? I think he can, yeah. I, I think, uh, as far as I know, my, I think he can play in the vast amount of the major leagues with the exception of Italy. I think the Olympic Federation of Italy, or whatever it is they're called, effectively regulates sport in Italy and they don't allow them. But I think he is allowed to wear them in, or is allowed to have it in other countries. I'm open to correction, but... Yeah, so I read somewhere that was only Denmark and the Netherlands and some people were touting him for Ajax, but I just think it's remarkable that he is fit enough, healthy enough, and is willing to come back. Uh, I think that's great. I, I think it shows people that there's life after a heart attack. And you see, there you go. That's That for me is the big message for so many people who are facing challenges is, okay, this guy, he's an elite sportsman, he has all the wealth in the world, but at its core, he has the ambition and the wherewithal and the, the, the drive to go and say, right, this happened, I've survived it, let's try and move on. And that, to me, is what role models are, Damien. Exactly. And a final one. Have you seen the pictures from the uh, Connacht GAA Airdome last night? I watched it. Actually, I, I, I thought it was spectacular to watch, and then there was a cynic in me thinking, what about indoor sport in the times we're living in? But I thought it was incredible to watch. But really high scoring, 121 to 117. But like for people who haven't seen it, it's effectively like playing a GAA match in an upturned bouncy castle. I don't mean yeah, that disparagingly, but that's... They're like the massive ones that used to be in Leperstown for the tennis courts, uh, only much, much bigger than yeah. that. But um, I did think it looks it looks super, and for this time of year, fast-flowing game, obviously no wind. Um, yeah, spectacular, yeah. and fair play to, to Connacht. It looked a state-of-the-art for those west of the channel. If you build it, they will come. Right, much more to come in the programme. We're going to chat tennis. Novak Djokovic getting his medical exemption to compete at the Australian Open. And coming up after the break, plenty of soccer to recap upon. We'll be joined by Stephen Kelly. Green Farm. Being flat to the mass isn't real. Our protein is. Get real. Game on. Football. Welcome back to Game On and it's time to talk about the Premier League and all the action there was, there wasn't and some off the field action. Stephen Kelly joins us on the line. Stephen, Tuchel and Lukaku have had talks today and all seems to be rosy in the garden but what exactly was Roman and Lukaku trying to prove by doing the interview with Sky Italy that he did? It was just trying to exert his power on the situation. He obviously wasn't playing, so I wasn't happy about it. I was letting his feelings be known. Um, you know, not the best way to go about it. You would think just go and have a conversation with your manager, keep it in house, and get back to performing well. Um, you, you know, they, they brought him there on, on big money, a huge signing this summer, and he could be a really massive influence on them. Um, but you know, obviously, they've not had the best. He's not had the best of starts. Got off decent enough. But not what you would expect it from him, and I just think that with the form, with the shape they play and the style, and um, Lukaku's trying to say that it's not shooting him. But uh, you know, there's got to be a way of fitting him into that side to get more goals. And with him currently, you know, languishing behind C, him playing and scoring and being involved is only going to push him further to the table. So you know, I think they got to get him back inside, and Tuchel's got to resolve that. Now. Well. Fingers crossed with Chelsea. They've done that today in a conversation. But yeah, you keep that in house and have a conversation with your manager instead of going and you know turn your toys out of pram with with it with the foreign press. I suppose a, a, a bit of me thinks Tuchel had to do what he did on Sunday and, and drop him and not play him. But do you think it was a difference in a two-two draw, or do you think like I do that Chelsea are probably lucky not to lose anyway? 
I think Chelsea are looking at the lose to be honest. I think uh, probably the man that, that had a couple of chances, Mane, was was the difference and you know, maybe, maybe he shouldn't have been on the pitch in anyway. But Lukaku on form can be a massive difference. He can he like when, when he's playing well, he's he's almost unplayable. Even the likes of Van Dijk, who's a colossal centre back, would struggle with his physicality and his movement and you know, you look at the goals he scored and the games he's done really well in he could be a huge vital part of Chelsea pushing for the title I know it looks like that might be dead and buried already um, but you kind of feel that if they're going to have a chance he's got to be playing for them and I think the manager is right he had to drop him he had to show that he's in charge he's the one that makes the calls makes decisions and a player is only part of the team he's not the one that's instigating everything but Stephen the, the flip side of that and, and to play devil's advocate somewhat if he's not happy if he's only made what, 21 appearances in all competitions no, sorry that's including his appearances for Belgium so obviously limited appearances by his standards is he not entitled to answer honestly an honest question that was given to him are you happy no I'm not oh he's, he's completely of course he's, he can answer that question for everyone but you got to imagine there's going to be repercussions about that as well you know what I mean and it's just, as much as you're being honest if you're not happy with the way things are, then you go and see your manager about you. Lukaku doesn't need to do interviews, does he? He's not, he's not like he... The players have so much media attention and so much... You know, their, their voices out there all the time would have been through their you know, social media accounts and stuff and all. They don't need to have those interviews. They don't, don't need to answer questions if they don't need to. You can say, oh, no, no comment. You know, you don't need to put yourself in a position that the manager is going to drop you based on that. You know, you're not going. You know, that's not going to get you in the team, and especially with a manager like Tuchel, who, who seems to be ruthless and it's his way or the highway, which is what you want from a manager. It's why they're successful. Managers that tend to be successful tend to have everybody on side, and you know, I think they've got they've got to resolve it because he's someone that I think can be really vital in them in them progressing and and pushing and chasing down City. You know, so they have to get him back in playing, but it's just what style and what system is going to suit them. But that, that's a particularly risky approach at a club like Chelsea where you have a massive benefactor and the money that's been, you know, forked out because th- there is a history of the players being backed at the expense of the manager and the revolving door that has existed at the manager's office in Cobham at their training ground. Yeah, and uh, Lukaku knows that. He's been at the club for long enough to know the managers don't tend to have a long time regardless how successful they've been. Um, and regardless of how, how highly regarded they are Chelsea tend to change their managers quite frequently and it's worked for them they, they're the most decorated club since the which has taken over they won more trophies than any other team in, 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 the, in the Premier League so it's a system that works for them and Lukaku knows that he's, he's saying this to be provocative to, to push the boundaries and make the man make Abramovich think you know what is Tuchel getting to a stage where he's not getting the best of the players and um, Lampard went because the players he signed he didn't wasn't deemed fit enough to get the most out of the investment they spent. And um, I think two goes a long way off that at the moment. But Lukaku, because of the investment, because of the financial, you know, because of much they spent on him, it's going to be something that will be in the back of the, of the owner's mind. But I think it's too soon to be anywhere near that conversation. Looking at at the game last Sunday, Liverpool two, Chelsea two. What about Kelleher in goal? I mean, some of the big Liverpool players have come out and backed him. He's going to get his chance now. Is he going to push Bazuno? Is it, is it good for Stephen Kenny? It was great to see him on the pitch anyway. Honestly, it's, it's amazing for Stephen Kenny. It's terrible for him to make a decision between these two because if Bazuno can't be dropped because he's probably been our best player in goal. So he, he's undroppable at the moment. That position is his until he makes a mistake regardless of what he's playing at club level. But if you have Creeping Kelleher who's 
who's playing for Liverpool who are pushing for Champions League pushing for Premier League and for him to not be getting a starting lineup, and the only reason why Cleveland wouldn't have got a spot ahead of Bazuna is because he wasn't playing because he chose to be the number two at Liverpool which was always going to be a tough decision but decision you have to make that young age and you're being told that you're that highly regarded you're not going to walk away from Liverpool just to get game time to represent your national team um, but it's, it's an amazing amazing thing to have as Ireland to have two young goalkeepers that are so highly thought of and you know for most of the moments we've saw, seen Creevy in the games he's played for and the, the couple of games he played in the Champions League for Liverpool he's just so calm and collected they're both very similar very good in the ball with their feet command have a presence about themselves I was such a young age looking at to play thousands of league games both of them um, I think we're just blessed it's great to have but the, the challenge he has, Stephen, and you know, there's people have likened it to say Courtois a couple of years ago. That do you go on loan to like, like he's he's too good to be with a, say a championship club. Like could he go abroad for a couple of years, get regular game time? Um, you know, Allison's not going anywhere quick at the age of 29. But the, the big challenge he has is Liverpool don't have anyone who's now close to being as defined a number two. So the only way that he's really going to get out and get game time is if Liverpool brings someone in to effectively give him competition for the second spot. Yeah, that, but would Liverpool do that? Would you as Liverpool? No. Would you do that? As much as you... Yeah, well you wouldn't. It'd be an absolute madness. You've got a young goalkeeper and, you know, let's say it's a goalkeeper who's got a bit longer in the legs than, than outfield players. So you've got a really young goalkeeper who's shown such promise who's developing really well under the tutelage out there at the club. He's learning from a fantastic goalkeeper. So he's training week in, week out with Alston. He's pushing them. He's the one that... They're, like, goalkeepers, you know, you've ever seen at a club, they, they're really close. The two, goal, the two goalkeepers or the three goalkeepers and the goalkeeper coach is almost like a separate entity to the rest of the team. And he'll have a massive camaraderie with Alston. He'll be learning from him all the time. So for his development... Yeah, it'd be for Ireland getting out and playing, but for his development at the moment, it doesn't look like he needs to be anywhere. And if you're Liverpool, there's no chance you're letting him go. But when we look at, at that result, though, and the, the impact on the table, and, and like even to watch the coverage on Sky, they were hyping the life out of it that it was a six-pointer for whoever lost was effectively gone from the Premier League. But Pep Guardiola must have been watching it and you know, rubbing his hands together. Ten points clear, five wins on the bounce. That He and City have a hand and a half on that Premier League trophy now. Yeah, they, they, you know, at this stage now, and I, I said about Chelsea all season, I said I just couldn't imagine Chelsea dropping many points. Um, but see, from this position, you just think, you know, who's going to stop them? Are, can teams call that back? Will they drop enough points between now and the end of the season to give the team a chance because it's in their hands and you just can't see it? Um, you know, the, the, it looks like the race is going to be on for a second, third and fourth, realistically. It's Champions League spots. Um, and it's crazy to be thinking we're talking about this when well, a few weeks ago, we were saying about how close it was, how those three teams in it, how that they were all pushing each other. And it was so lovely that those three teams that were all played a different style of football, but were all really, you know, setting the league alike. So to be in a position now where they're 10 points ahead, it's just remarkable. But the squad they have, the players that, that turn it on week in, week out, that just go out there and relentless, you know, City and Pepper, they're, they're a machine. Steve, is it fair to say, though, that you have City, then you have Chelsea, Chelsea Liverpool, and then you have Arsenal, West Ham, Spurs and Man United playing for fourth. Is that not yeah. the way it looks? Yeah, it is. At the moment, that's the way it looks. Like West Ham are on fine form and you know, they're still getting results. Um, Arsenal have come back into it in a big way, getting back at the time. Spurs, you know, I'm loving what I'm seeing there at the moment. The resilience that still, I know having two games in hand is not, or three games in hand is not great unless you can put the points on the board, but you don't feel like they're going to 
you know, lose as many games that they would have lost before. They look resilient, they look tough. And I think Tottenham have a great chance of pushing into the top four spot. Um, and it's just now with the, you know, African Cup of Nations coming up, African Nations, you know, Mane and Salah, those players that are going to miss out for these clubs um, that are going to be huge. And you're going to think, what, how will Liverpool cope with, with the loss, with that loss? Obviously, Man City and Chelsea are the only two teams with the full complement of games played. They've both played 21. Everybody else then has has games to catch up. But when you're looking at the other end of the table, you're down to Watford, Burnley, Newcastle, Norwich. Is that going to have a bigger impact on them or the fact that they have no European games? Does that help them? Um, I don't know whether it helps them or not. I think sometimes being in Europe... Uh, it can benefit you just because you, your squad rotation and you're playing games and you know you have a game coming around quicker to get rid of that loss but you know down there it's, it's looking tough obviously Newcastle you kind of feel like there's obviously loads of more moves going around about how much they're going to spend in this window and the players are trying to sign already um, and that's going to give them a boost you would have thought but you know it, it, Burnley are the ones that you always think every year they're going to get back out of it and at the moment, they just don't look like they can get themselves in a position that's going to push them out of the table. But yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be really tough down there. And also, then when you look at you, see, you mentioned Spurs are flying. What about United? I mean, to me, obviously, I'm a fan and I want to get your opinion on it. The draw to Newcastle beat Burnley. They were hopeless, I tell you, yesterday. Yeah, they were. They were really poor. And, you know, look, it's so hard to pinpoint the actual main problems. But defensively, they're just. They, they don't, like, how many saves did De Gea pull up again yesterday? I mean, listen, De Gea has been in fine form for him, but you don't want him to be in fine form. You want him to be stopping shots every now and again when he needs to against a big side. But, like, some of the saves he pulled off were absolutely exceptional. And you don't want to be positioned that your goalkeeper is saving you week in, week out. There's such a lack of energy, enthusiasm. And, um, you know, we talked about when the social was there that there's no identity to them. That still hasn't been changed. That hasn't been, And, you know, people keep talking about Ronaldo is the problem. I don't know how he possibly could be the problem. You've got a player who can score your goals if you get the ball to him. You know, <laughs> you've got to get, get a system and a style and get the player to actually motivate. They look so not interested. And that's such a worry. To be playing for such a club, such a historic, massive team like Manchester United, and loads of players look like they're disinterested and, and as if they don't want to be there. But Stephen, like we look at it, mathematically they're closer to the bottom of the table than they are to Man City on top. You've Sancho brought in, Varane brought in, Ronaldo brought in. You couldn't say that they're a better team than they were this time twelve months ago. No, absolutely not. No, they have they, they haven't improved. They're not better than what they were. If anything, they're they're less points than what they were this time last season. So they just they got worse, and um, which is hard to say because you know. It's, again, it's so hard to pinpoint what what is going wrong there. What is the issue? And I don't know whether it's just too many players, too many individuals that are not all in the same direction, or just not a strong enough manager in there to pull them all in one direction. Um, and you know, just talking about how the manager's going to cope, how Ralph Ragnick, what's he going to do? You know, the pressing and stuff and all. I, I'm just not too sure that the, the players have bought into that yet. And, that's an issue because the players have to be on board whatever the manager's wanting them to do and these players I don't know what manager can come in and motivate them because nobody seems to be able to to get enough out of them to be actually look like a, cohe- mm. a cohesive unit but with, with respect as well and if we ignore the games that Michael Carrick was in charge of like since Raniak has been in the manager's seat uh, beat Palace beat Norwich away drew away to Newcastle beat Burnley at home 
like there, there was this run of games and we probably would have factored Wolves into it you know Aston Villa before Gerrard came in West Ham like he had this run that looked like a run of handy games and perhaps last night was the reality check that people might have forgotten about over the last four weeks yeah it was an absolute reality check and you know it wasn't just reality check Wolves dominated for a lot of that game Wolves pulled them apart at times some of the past and like I said they had pulled off some of the amazing saves and it, it is it's just you're looking at I think the problem is United as well. They're, they're so far off the likes of City, Chelsea, and Liverpool that it's that's what's hard to take for most people. I mean, I'm not a Manchester United fan, but you've always appreciated. I've always been so highly respected of going like going to Old Trafford and being a horrible place to play. And I know that the chances are you're probably not going to come out with a result. You don't go into a game like that. Every professional wants to win a match, but after the match, you kind of think if you had to come away with anything, it would have been a good result. Whereas that's not the case anymore. You know, it's is not a place where you fear teams don't fear them they don't and you know we're going back to a good time since that's happened but it's just they're so far off it they are miles away from those top four teams the top three teams should I say and they don't look like they're getting anywhere near it Obviously Stephen before we let you go you have got the African Nations Cup coming up as you said mm-hmm. there's loads of games to catch up I mean next week on the or January the 11th there's some of the match day 18 games being played mm. for Spurs with three games in hand mathematically they're in a pretty decent position you as a Spurs fan have they a big and deep enough squad to maximise the points in the position they're in I think so and I think it's the fact that they're not competing well they're not competing in the European front for a major trophy in that sense like they're not it's not Champions League it's not Europa League it's also something that's going to they're going to write home about um, with that conference cup that they you know they look, they're not, they're, that game doesn't look like it can be replayed in any way but you kind of think that Saturday to Saturday football or even putting a game in midweek which happens quite a lot over Christmas period anyway those players should be more than capable of doing what Conte wants for them like the squad's not huge but they have enough depth to be able to change slightly at times to be able to bring in like one or two players just to boost the energy level I think to be pushing for a top four and to get back up the table and not being competing in Europe, that's their advantage. Even though they have the game to have their advantage is the fact that they're not really competing on two fronts. So I think for Tottenham, it's a great opportunity with a manager who's going to absolutely push them. Like he, he will he will demand everything from them. Like I love, he kicks every ball on the sideline. It's just great. It's great to be watching it, my team now that I actually feel excited about it. And how long before Klopp and Tuchel start just concentrating solely on Europe with City gone so far clear? They're never going to reveal that, uh, ever. <laughs> It'll be the last day of the season, and they still won't be talking about it. But I, I think on the back of their minds, you'll start seeing, especially with the, with the you know, African combinations coming up, there's going to be times where they, they're going to have to rejig the system, you know, players that they're going to miss out on. But and, you know, that's the excuse for arresting players and bringing people in. Um, but they'll definitely be focusing on that. And Liverpool know that that's a competition that on their day they can they can beat every Chelsea as well. You know, current holders know that they can go the distance and Tuchel's already got there before. But I don't think they're going to give up the ghosts yet and they're going to just they're waiting for City to slip up. But it's whether or not City will slip on and you just can't see that. They're going to be relentless. Neither can I, Stephen. Thanks for taking our call. I hope you have a happy new year and we're going to take a quick break. <laughs> With Green Farm. Being up to 90 isn't real. The protein in our range is get real. Game on on 2FM. 
Uh, you're very welcome back to the programme. We are going to be chatting tennis in just a second. Um, I was just thinking, uh, Ruby, towards the tail end, it might be something for us to come back to during the week, but January transfer window, you look around, like obviously Aaron Connolly has got his move to Middlesbrough on loan, but if you were Darren Randolph, Jeff Hendrick, maybe Adam Ida, Jamie McGrath, there's probably a couple of players, I'm sure Stephen Kenny, if he had an honest word with them, might say, if the opportunity came to either get out and get game time or get game time at a higher level, it would do us all a favour. Yeah, game time, full stop. Whatever the level is, just just game time. Get on the pitch. I mean, you know, you mentioned a couple of young names there, especially Adam Ida. You need game time playing against men, and um, that would be a huge a huge boost for him, but also for for the Irish team as well. Uh, get him on the pitch, and you know, I know the, uh, the Irish team has done well, but if we had a few more lads. You know, playing regularly at a higher level, it, it would then def- mm. definitely benefit, especially with them all buying into Stephen Kenny's approach. And you know, the, the tide has turned for the national team, but it'll be interesting to see. I mean, obviously, you know, Newcastle are going to spend big, and, and that's the rumor, and they're going to try and buy the way out of trouble. But it'll but, be but, interesting to see what happens. But come here, like you, you look at it, and I know, like you know, um, Roy Keane got castigated from a high for talking years ago about players, and well, he had a go at the wives not wanting to go to the northeast of England and how unattractive it was, and like the, you know, there's, there's been this suggestion. I don't know if if Eddie Howard, Newcastle themselves, have acknowledged it or given it any credence that Newcastle might effectively have a training ground near London, and players would fly up in order to do to play the games. But if you look at that, there is no reason other than cash, pure and simple, to go to Newcastle at the minute. And like you look at, at some of the players that they're being linked with, there is about as much chance of me playing for Newcastle in the Premier League after Christmas as there is some of the names they've been linked with. Second from bottom in the Premier League table, like they're, you know, t- okay, two points from safety, but the names they're being linked with aren't going to go near Newcastle for love nor money. It's hard to see it, and you know, do they need to move the training ground or, or buy a few helicopters? Just Which fly them up from London every day, probably a be cheaper. Right, yeah. we're going to chat tennis. Uh, we'll be joined in a second by Stephen Higgins from CrossCourtView.com, but we are joined uh, by former technical director with Tennis Ireland, uh, Irish Davis Cup captain, and now a, a coach of some renown, Gary Cahill, is with us. Gary, how are you? Not bad in yourself. Not a bother. Thanks for being with us. Um, Novak Djokovic in the news today, uh, obviously getting his medical exemption in order to allow him to compete at the Australian Open. And when he tweeted it, and it became news a couple of hours ago, uh, seems to have come to a feral shock to most of the world. Would that be a similar sense within tennis circles? Yeah, it would. Yeah. I mean, people have been asking me this all week with Novak playing. I said, no chance. I don't think it's going to be allowed because, you know, I've been travelling through this on the tour through COVID and I've seen what players have had to do you know from isolation last year in Australia players who were unlucky enough to be on a flight with someone that tested positive had to isolate in the rooms for two weeks and everybody was told that look don't come to Australia unless you're double jabbed uh, including the Victoria, the Victorian deputy who said look there'll be no loopholes for, for, for privileged players and then for this turnaround today I think I think everybody is really surprised and, you know, for a medical exemption, and uh, sorry, I don't mean to sound like I don't like Novak because I think he, he's, he's incredible for the sport, but, you know, a medical exemption uh, for acute conditions and he's one of the fittest guys in the tour, it just doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Stephen Higgins from Cross Court Tennis joins us, or Cross Court View joins us on the line as well. Stephen, as Gary is just saying there, how exactly did Novak Djokovic get a medical exemption? 
Sorry. Find out really in, in a sense. So it has gone through a process. So Tenet Australia received the initial application and it goes to two independent bodies who anonymously will judge to see whether the person deserves to receive it. Uh, I think it is out of step with his initial thoughts that throughout, obviously, the pandemic, we had the issues with the Adria tour and he was consistently questioned about whether he would get vaccinated. And the whole latter part of last year, it was a willy-wonty of, is Novak going to turn up and defend the nine-time champion Australia, try to make it 10? Will he turn up? As we knew how strict the regulations were in Australia. Bear in mind, just in Melbourne, obviously, where the Australian Open is held, they had up to 207, almost 270 days of restrictions and six lockdowns. And to participate at the Australian, to attend the Australian Open or to work at the Australian Open, you must be vaccinated. So obviously this leaves a bit of a sour taste of like how, as Gary had said, one of the fittest humans on the planet receives an exemption seemingly on their medical grounds. Gary, uh, obviously Novak won't comment on whether he's been vaccinated or not, and that's his own prerogative, but his father did sort of admit on Serbian television or accused Tennis Australia's stance on mandatory jabs as as really being blackmail. So we can read between the lines there without being too um, adding, adding, adding two and two together and not really getting the correct answer. But if you're looking at Novak Djokovic getting the medical exemption and then, as Stephen has said, everybody else having to have a vaccination, everyone working there having a vaccination... How does this add up? How does it look for Djokovic? How does it look for tennis? Is tennis just yeah. facilitating his biggest name? Yeah, it, I mean, it looks like that. Uh, it certainly looks like that. I mean, there are players who've pulled out of this tournament because they've openly said they're not vaccinated, you know, and that's fair enough. And actually, there's a young Australian girl who won the tournament to get a qualification wildcard into the tournament. Sorry, a main draw wildcard into the tournament. And when she said she wasn't vaccinated, she wasn't allowed to play. So it just seems extremely unfair that, you know, other players have had to pull out and not even apply for an exemption uh, when Novak uh, seems to be able to just walk into the tournament, you know, and, and, not, and not announce whether he's vaccinated or not. But, but also there was problems last year. I don't know if you remember last year, uh, Novak was in the news as well because... Last year, when they had the quarantine in the hotel, he made a request for six exemptions, one of them being that he wanted to move into a house with a tennis court. So this is not really the first time. And again, look, I don't want to sound like uh, anti-Nova, but mm. I think sport has to be a level playing field. And it, it leads to a kind of bigger question. You know, do the top-ranked players get treated differently or not? But Stephen... But, like just, but Gary, just, Stephen, like, and again, we're, we're, we're dealing with a man's personal medical um, history and situation here. And, and as Ruby alluded to, a lot of us have made the decision to be vaccinated. There's a lot of people have made a decision and it's their decision not to be vaccinated. So we're dealing with a situation here where there is such a spotlight on the Australian Open. It's very, very difficult to see how openly and transparently they can effectively facilitate one man because of who he is. So we're left then to presume, does he have this cardiac issue which allows an exemption? Does he have an acute medical situation which allows an exemption? Or is there the possibility, which I think is another way around it, that perhaps he has tested positive within the past couple of months? That There's, there's too much at stake for there not to be a reason that we would like to think they can stand over and point to evidence. Yeah, but, but isn't it just unfortunate that there were probably three options for him and he chose the worst one or we're stuck in the worst one. 
that if he had been vaccinated and that was fair enough, the story would have died long ago. If he decided, like you said before, that he was not happy with the restrictions or didn't suit, he, he could have skipped the tournament. People would have been like, oh, I can't believe he threw up the chance to win a 10 title. But that's what he believes. And OK, that's fair enough. But now we're in this middle ground where he's turned up and people are questioning, should he be there? Imagine how the fans are going to respond. I've already seen some of the reaction and it's not great because bear in mind, Melbourne has had very strict restrictions. Mm. You've heard the players, some of them have been through you know, the amount of cancellations and restrictions they've gone through, they've all had to, or all had to be vaccinated. 95 of the top 100 men are now vaccinated going there. And then you have obviously the press where before his first match, or obviously now before his first match, end of the sec- first week, into the second week, into the final, it'll just run and run. It's a bit reminiscent of the decision Naomi Osaka made last year where once it started to really overshadow her progress, she decided to quit the tournament because it was just becoming too much of a distraction. And Gary, I could hear you groan in the background as I try to put out a rational case for the exemption. But when we look at it, Federer won't be there. Varinka won't be there. Juan Martín del Potro won't be there. Dominic Thiem won't be there. Novak Djokovic will be there. Were he to go on and add another title, is it a title that will have an asterisk alongside it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the title will have an asterisk beside it, but... I think it will be a very tough from a mental perspective after all that's happened now for Novak uh, to be able to hold it together uh, and I agree with what was just said there about you know how difficult it's going to be and how frosty the reception is going to be for him when he arrives in Australia I think it will be a, it'll be very difficult to be able to uh, you know mentally keep it together for, for two weeks after all the controversy Possibly it will be, but sure that's what he's he's mm. he's well capable of being. Um, not the fans' favourite. I mean, because Stephen, he's not exactly a, a, a PR genius. I know he's a huge brand, but some of his publicity, public relations activities haven't been great in the last twelve months, have they? Yeah, it's. But I think what you've seen, if you think about his ability on the court, all the issues he's had to deal with, the amount of times he's played, say. Federer and Nadal in places where most of the crowd are against him and he finds a way to win that he's this kind of contradiction where in some ways during his career you thought he was desperate for people to love him he wanted to be thought of like the other two guys and loved but then on the other hand you see with he doesn't really care what people think about his general decisions and he's strong enough to go along with it and it doesn't seem to affect his tennis he can just focus on what he's trying to do and apart from last year which was obviously the big shock of he didn't make the calendar grand slam after we thought he would he's been pretty much invincible in the most important moments bear in mind say Rafael Nadal is going to be playing in the Australian Open you think oh he might be a rival for him Rafael Nadal hasn't beaten Novak Djokovic on a hard court since 2013 you know so it's and particularly in Australia basically what Rafael Nadal is at Roland Garros Novak Djokovic is at Melbourne so while I think there's a big issue about him with the exemption. He is the best player, and I don't think there'd be a massive asterisk, so to speak, if he wins the title. Okay, we'll leave it there, gentlemen. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen Higgins, Gary uh, Cahill with us there. Um, Ruby, Liverpool have requested a postponement of their Carabao Cup game against Arsenal tomorrow due to uh, increased player inavailability. 
Oh my God! I think going. they had a game off already. Yeah. So uh, it's uh, yeah, it's going to spread and spread. Thanks very much, uh, Ruby. Good to talk to you as always. We'll uh, Cheers, Damien, chat soon. Ruby, um, Ronan Lawler produced tonight. Uh, Laura Lee Davies, Dermot O'Brien, the rest of our production team from Damien O'Mara till tomorrow night. Thank you for your time. Tara's on the way. Green Farm. Your rise and grind isn't real. Our protein is get real. Two.